The launch of Shimano R9200 series Dura-Ace and R8100 series Ultegra is not simply an effort to make one-time bike setup easier or to unveil new technology for the sake of creating buzz. Instead, it represents a holistic approach that is 100% performance-focused. Thousands of engineering decisions and refinements over the course of several years were made with the singular aim of making you faster. This is the science of speed, Shimano's design philosophy for its latest road groups. It is comprised of five elements, a new DI2 platform, a refined interface, the addition of Hyperglide Plus, a category redefining brake system, and a collection of new wheels. The result is a clean wireless cockpit, faster shifting, enhanced spray control, and quicker, more stable wheels. Top that with an easy-to-use eTube Project smartphone app, and connecting with your bike and enjoying the ride has never been better. This is the science of speed, and it's what sets Shimano apart. Hello, and welcome to the VeloNews Podcast. Ben Delaney here, back in the bicycle bubble of Boulder after a great week in Belgium for the Road World Championships. We've got a fun podcast for you today that is all about Belgium and Belgium adjacent events. We've got to check in with our man Andrew Hood who is training it across Europe on the uh, the aftermath of the world's party in Leuven and his uh, predictions and crystal ball prognostications for this weekend's historic events including the first ever women's Paris-Roubaix. We've got uh, our man Fred Dreyer the former host who just can't uh, break the habit, who was out in uh, Cedar City, Utah for another big Belgian race, the Belgian Waffle Ride in Cedar City. Uh, he has a good interview with Michael Marks, the founder of the Belgian Waffle Ride series. Interestingly enough, when Michael started BWR back in 2011, he had no interest in it being a gravel event. He was wanting to emulate the Cabo Classics of events like Peru Bay and Tour Flanders. Fast forward to today, and BWR is one of the category-defining events. And Michael's got a lot of interesting insights about what's going on in gravel now and uh, where it's leading people, including perhaps into more mountain biking. So there's a lot of good stuff in that chat. We also have some interesting tests on site today in regard to the upcoming Paris-Roubaix about Paris-Roubaix tires. Longtime technical editor Leonard Zinn sent 15 tires to Wheel Energy a tire testing facility in Finland to test the rolling resistance of these tires that many of the pro teams will be using this weekend on a surface that simulates cobblestones. So some interesting things you want to check out there on velonews.com now. And lastly, I've got to spend some time on a new gravel bike, the Trek Checkpoint. I raced that at Steamboat Gravel a few weeks back, and that is officially being released today. So you want to, if you're interested in gravel race bikes, Again, head on over to velonews.com and check that out. Right now, though, let's check in with Andy Hood as he rides a train across Europe. See what he has to say about this coming weekend. Hello, good listeners. This is Andrew Hood checking in from Points Unknown across Europe. We're still buzzing from the World Championships. Are you? I mean, what a race. It was just absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, we were hanging out uh, in Leuven the last couple of days after the Worlds, and the buzz is still there. A little bit hungover, but everyone was just so thrilled with how those races were. Now we're transferring from Flanders to France, swapping out Moule, for Margaret de Canard, 
Bergs of Flanders for the cobblestones of northern France. Good beer for bad coffee. But that's what the job brings. Big buzz this weekend, of course. It's the Perry Robay weekend. Of course, the real story is what is the weather going to do? The forecasting gods of the French, the French national meteo, is telling us that there's a pretty good chance it's going to be raining. And that would mean the first wet Robay in nearly 20 years. Of course, the last two wet Robays were back in 2001 and 2002. Johan Museo won in 2002, which really, it had rained overnight. It was muddy, but almost partly cloudy, sunny during that actual race. The real last wet and sloppy, truly sloppy Robay was back in 2001 when Service Kinavan won. And in fact, he still, to this day, has not washed the mud off of his bike. Of course, this weekend is going to be the historic first women's Perry-Robet, Perry-Robet Femme. And, uh, you know, you almost feel that that course that the women have in a lot of ways is almost going to be harder than what the men have because the distance is a little bit shorter, but they're racing over the final 85K of the same parkour going into the velodrome at Robet. So what does that mean? Well, luckily, they've at least added in three laps around and on where the race starts to give them a little time to warm up their legs before really jumping into the hardest and most punishing sectors of cobblestone. Uh, of course, a lot of anticipation going into the race Saturday. It's the first edition of this Robay race. Everyone in the Peloton wants to be there. You know, it's great to see riders like Marianne Voss, Annemie Van Vluten, and some of the biggest names in the Peloton all showing up for a race that is going to be probably the hardest race of the entire year on the women's calendar. Who's going to win? You know, the favorite for that race has to be Ellen Van Dyke. She just came off the time trial world title. The way she's built, the engine that she has, you can imagine that she can almost just ride away from the entire peloton that day. Then, of course, the men's race on Sunday. Lots of favorites. It's going to be an interesting and very different kind of Perry-Robet this year, simply, simply by the fact that it is being contested in October. Um, remember the last? Here's a good trivia question to ask all your friends. Who was the last Perry-Robet winner? Of course, back in spring of 2019. Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Philippe Gilbert. Gilbert will be there with John Degelhoff, another former winner for Lado Sudal. Um, but it's going to be some twists and turns, I think, that are going to make the men's edition very interesting as well because they're coming in after the world. So it's the big world's uh, Robet double. That's great. But it's very different than the traditional buildup to the Spring Classics. Uh, I had a chance to talk to some riders at the Vuelta España a month or you know, a couple of weeks ago, talking to guys like Stewar, uh, Matteo Trenton, uh, Matthews, and a few other guys that will be in the race. And they were saying that it's going to be a very different approach to Robay simply because typically Robay is kind of the pinnacle of that final weekend of the Northern Classics where you've been racing over the hard cobblestones for several weeks. Everything is really hitting a peak going into Robay in a typical calendar. This year, it's suddenly just plucked out of nowhere, and they're going to have to race the hardest, most technical race of the entire year without really any taste of cobblestones going into the race on Sunday. Also, the weather's going to be a big factor. Not only 
are, is there a chance of rain? It's also going to be in October. Different kind of light, different kind of feel of the roads. Of course, you saw maybe a story on Velo News that they were out there cleaning, kind of almost shearing some of the uh, cobblestone sectors because without having been raced on for nearly two years, um, a lot of uh, weeds and grass and kind of mud is built up over some of these sectors. And so the Ami de Perirobay were out there cleaning up some of these kind of trickier sectors, especially the Arnberg Forest. And speaking of the forest, the fact that it's in the woods means there's going to be leaves on the ground. And if it's wet and there are leaves on these big cobblestones, that could make for a very treacherous race. So anyway, please join us. We'll be hanging out in Lille. We have Jim Cotton inside O'Shea on the ground for us. Check back to Velo News for all the Perrier Bay news in action. Thanks. Thanks for that hoodie. Wish I was going to be there with you guys this weekend for the start, the middle and the finish of Perrier Bay. One thing I've always loved to do uh, being a bike nerd was uh, check out the bikes and the gear in the plaza in the comfy in there at the start uh, to see what bikes are being used and then also what what tires and what tire pressures are being run because that's always seems to be the secret sauce and something that no one can ever get quite perfectly right uh and the race has this unique mix of a lot of pavement up front early on where aerodynamics matter and rolling resistance matters uh, and then multiple sectors of cobbles where the fastest skinniest least rolling resistance tire isn't going to do you a whole lot of good when you're getting bashed over the cobbles and potentially flatting this super fast tire. But, uh, you know, we've seen some teams go as far as have two separate setups, like the Trek Sigafredo in the past has gone with an arrow road bike uh, for the first portion, then try to make a, a quick bike switch before they uh, hit the Arnberg Forest. There's, of course, no guarantee that you'll have time to make a bike switch, but that's that's one interesting proposition is a, a way to go about it. To, to figure out what tire is the fastest tire for the famous Paris-Roubaix race, we sent 15 tires to Wheel Energy uh, a few months ago and just got the results back and put a story up on velonews.com now. A lot of cool stuff in there. I can't give too much of it away because uh, we want to save some of the good stuff for our members. Um, but there were some things that you know confirmed past hypotheses, uh, such as wider being uh, faster as far as rolling resistance is concerned. You know, we tested multiple iterations of the same tire, a 30 mil version and a 28 mil version. And every in, in every instance, the 30 mil tire was faster. Uh, some things were, were surprising, though, as far as you know, tires we thought would do well in this test uh, didn't do quite so well. Wheel Energy has a, a giant drum that they use for testing, and there's a couple interesting things about how this particular test was conducted. Uh, one is the surface, and that Wheel Energy made a special faux cobblestone uh, bolt-on for the tires to roll over. Um, and that is because you know, the, you know, the fastest tire on a flat surface might not be the fastest tire on, on a bumpy surface. And one thing that Leonard explores in a separate story today is the, the balance of hysteresis with impedance. Hysteresis being how much uh, energy is being absorbed by the tire just as the, as the tire deflects. And to combat that, typically just adding more air pressure reduces the hysteresis. This works you know, is, is best shown in, in like a velodrome with a, a super smooth surface where the more air you put in your tire, the faster it goes. Impedance, 
is another thing that you deal with very much in the real world, which is getting bumped around. Uh, and that, you know, the more you get bumped around, the, the slower you go. And uh, that is, you know, in direct opposition to adding tire pressure. So one thing that was interesting about the study was testing all these tires, not just in comparison to themselves, but at multiple air pressures along the way. So we started at two bar, tested, uh, and then increased by half a bar, measuring how rolling resistance would decrease normally each time uh, until we found a point where rolling resistance started to go back up again. And exactly where this happened varied uh, depending on the tire. Uh, but that was an interesting thing to see is, is finding each tire's sweet spot. So certainly something super interesting to, to, to check out on thelnews.com. Now let's go to another Belgian race on the other side of, of the ocean in Cedar City, where Fred Dreyer cut up with Michael Marks, founder of Belgian Waffle Ride, to talk about his race series and the gravel scene at large. Okay, today's guest on the Villain News podcast, it is Michael Marks. Michael is the director, originator, founder of Belgian Waffle Ride, which started as an oddity in San Diego and now has grown to four races, national series, thousands of people doing it. Uh, complete phenomenon. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Fred, good to see you. Thank you. So we're recording this the day before Belgian Waffle Ride's uh, Utah event here in Cedar City. We're in a beautiful public park. There are cyclists everywhere. Uh, if you hear any background noise, it's just from, you know, revelers recording outside. Um, Michael, there's a lot I want to talk to you about from, you know, expanding into a four race series to oh, your recent uh, interaction of being, unfortunately, being hit by a driver. But, you know, I wanted to start off with the big news that came down this week, which is that the UCI announced yeah. it's having this um, wants to have a gravel series for 2022, a gravel world championships for 2022. And as a race promoter and someone who's been in this scene for uh, the last decade or so, what was your knee-jerk reaction when you when you heard that? You know, uh, not to be a boring uh, person to interview, I, I was kind of like, yeah, I've been waiting for this. Um, and th I'm conflicted, right? Because part of me, I always envisioned the Belgian Waffle Ride being a UCI race, which it, it will never be because... We go on, you know, single track stuff and whatever. Maybe this is a step towards that. But there's all the trappings of UCI, which you can't help associate USA Cycling with. And then it starts to get sort of unappealing because you think about how are they going to inhibit this free thing that we have and try and control how we tuck on our bikes and wh what length sock we have and you know, what we can and can't do and how we can and can't race. And that's just not that appealing, right, to uh, to be inhibited, encumbered in any way. But as I said, I'm conflicted because I also want to grow this sport that we have. I want to I want people to just get on bikes. I'm like you. I want people to experience two wheels in every which way. So if somehow they do it right and they bring a spotlight to this crazy thing. Maybe it brings more people off-road. They're safer. They're not getting hit by cars. Young kids migrate from Nike stuff to, to doing this, and it, the world is a happier place with more people on bikes. That's my vision for it. I just don't feel comfortable that the UCI is capable of making that happen. 
if the UCI approached you and said, wow, you know, we love what you've done. Belgian Wolf Ride is this cool event. We want your event to be part of our series or, or the world championships. What would, what would you say? I would defer to my, the legion of peers of people that also put on similar races. And I would want to be in accord with all of them as to how we approach it. What I think will happen is all the really good ones will say, no, no, thank you, UCI. And then what will happen is there'll be a, let's just use the word second rate promoter who say, heck yeah, I'll do it. I'll do this with the UCI. So then you have this thing that's being managed from afar with a second rate promoter um, and it becomes a second rate enterprise and one that doesn't serve the greater good. Um, if the UCI said, we want your advice on how to do this, not necessarily doing it, but will you be a part of our advisory board to make sure that we do it right? I would raise my hand to say, yes, I'd like that to happen. But I would not raise my hand to say, yeah, take the Belgian waffle ride. You know, let's do this thing together. Um, it would take an awful lot of convincing uh, to do that. And, I'd, and when are they going to do that? They can do that in the next couple months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just seems um, it seems like they use the world, the platform of the world stage to to be hasty with some sort of announcement that, you know, they've been working on with the USA cycling in the in the background for quite some time. And that just doesn't it doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see um, how promoters and then also the marquee athletes um, react to it, because, you know, gravel is very much a. Uh, a sport that's being driven by, you know, the weekend warriors and the participants. And I think that's the way it should be. But, we love them. you know, the the pointy end of the of the race also has an impact on which races get more media attention than the other ones, which races, you yeah. know, get things like live streaming and television product. And so if they're able to somehow extend the carrot to those racers with, I don't know, sponsorship or money or exposure or whatever, I guess that'll be an interesting thing to see how that shifts this uh this industry in this marketplace yeah i I think we all um have seen how those two institutions have behaved so it's not all that easy to be optimistic about it no um within that dynamic what do you think the importance of of live streaming is and broadcast and like creating robust broadcasts around these events i love that idea you know we we play around with the instagram stories and upload video and people seem to be able to follow along so we do a women's race we do the men's race we try and make it entertaining for the folks at home um but you know our our uh for next year we'll be doing some live streaming with our new partner uh and i and i think it'll be really exciting and i and all the stuff we're doing now is good practice <laughs> for when it matters yeah i know i'm really interested to see that too you know the the challenge that all the gravel events are going to have to overcome is, you know, technology challenges created by these huge courses that go into the middle of nowhere where no sometimes cell. there's no cell reception yeah. and, you know, botted cellular doesn't work. And how do you account for that and create a program totally. that sort of takes that in? But I am confident that people year after year are going to sort of dial that in better and dial it of in Of course. Better. And it's going to be great. Imagine, you know, there, you and I can't be at every race, but now we can actually, you know, spend some time seeing it unfold. Uh, that's really exciting. So Michael, the big news for you this year was the expansion of Belgian waffle ride into a four 
race yeah. series. You now have events in California, yeah. Utah, Kansas, and uh, Asheville, North Carolina. What was the origin of this? Why did you want to do it? And when did you really feel like you had the juice and the ability to, to branch outside of California? Well, yeah, it's been 10 years. So 10, 11 years ago, I was I had a UCI Pro card to race cross. Um, my family's Belgian. I love longer races. So as is the usual, these things are selfish in nature. So I thought, well, how do I make a race that I can really enjoy? And sometimes enjoying is like, how can I make it to my advantage? <laughs> Whatever. So I just sort of thought, well, what about a seven hour cross race? You know, what would that be like? Because there wasn't anything like it. So that was the origin. The, the, the genesis of it was, all right. Let's call it the Belgian Waffle Ride because it's a silly name, but let's make it really hard. So the race has always been this uh, juxtaposition of fun, Belgian waffles and Belgian ale and, you know, mussels and fries and sort of celebrating the Belgian culture of the spring classics. Do it in California and um, turn people on to this proper bike racing. So to me, it was always a road race with cobbles, but we don't have cobbles, so we have dirt. And then every year I started making it more and more difficult so i think like four or five years, years into it i was i had this vision and the vision was we're gonna have a belgian waffle ride we're gonna have the french toast ride we're gonna have the german wiener schnitzel ride the dutch oven ride <laughs> like i had all these different rides planned out uh the spanish paella ride was another one in monterey and um and then you know other people were like well why don't you just keep doing the Belgian waffle ride, you started it as a brand. Why don't you proliferate that thing to other places and then let each place have its own unique hallmarks? Sort of it's the same idea of off-road and on-road, but each one's going to be different and then create this collection, not unlike the Ironman. So that's where we're headed. So we have, we have Tokyo, Canada, Colorado, Texas, um, all on the short list of next places to go. Uh, and that's exciting to me. Like, oh my God, we could almost be doing this every month of the year. It would be tiring, but wouldn't that be fun? And each one's different, right? So you can't go to another venue that's going to be like Cedar City, right? They're just, it's just too unique. So you, uh, this, this growth has come just as we've also seen um, the Lifetime Fitness, you know, start new events and now they have... Um, Unbound Gravel and the Rad and uh, Crusher and the Tusher. They have a ton. And a ton. I mean, what have you been thinking as, you know, you have been growing this national series. They have been growing their own national series. Do you see your two series as competing against each other, working in concert with one another? How do you see um, your growth corresponding with Lifetime's growth in the space? Well, we definitely try and collaborate, and I like all those guys there, particularly Ben uh, and Kimo, who runs it. And I like all the other race directors, you know, like Burke, and just, I like all those people. Um, so I want to collaborate. Like, I never want to compete with them, like on a weekend or for anything. So we all, we all say, okay, when are your races? Is it okay if we do our race on this weekend? Um, whenever they do something cool, we share it with our audience. Like on our social media, when their race is going on, we celebrate them and they're very supportive. I think for me, what I enjoy to use this word again is the juxtaposition where we're a bit more punk rock um, and they're, they're become a bit more, you know, 
classic radio, uh, less gritty, you know, there, because lifetime, everything's consolidated and there's a team and there's those individuals working across all the events. So it becomes very professional and organized, but it, it loses some of the grit and the punk rock zine sort of aspect to it that I really embrace with what we do here. So it's a healthy, uh, we're a counterpart to them, but definitely um, an amicable one. Is there any worry that um, there, you might, gravel may be re- reaching a saturation point? It has to. Big events? I mean, look at all these Johnny-come-lately races that pop up. They, they take riders from the other races, and it's just competition in the marketplace. So at some point, there'll be a correction. Some of those people will go away. Um, people will, in, in my view, we've had this migration from road to gravel. There was a big crossing in between there where, you know, you'd go to a cross race and there'd be 125 guys in the 45 plus race that migrated to gravel. Nike has got this massive, you know, grassroots with the youth thing. I think things are going to migrate to mountain biking again. Right. Like people are getting a taste of the dirt on a gravel bike. Well, why not just switch the bars up and get some more gearing and a bit wider tire and you can go anywhere. So I think the migration goes that way. It's more people on bikes doing things. But I think gravel can't sustain the type of growth um, that it's had. It's just inevitable. What then do you think will be the deciding factors between events that survive and events that go away. I mean, when I think about this conversation, I think about, you know, events that are very well run, events that get marquee riders to show up, events that market themselves well, events that have a good place on the calendar. It's sort of like there are all these factors that are going to play into what events are successful and what events ultimately go away. But I mean, when you really like look at it, what do you think is going to keep some events afloat? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say from you know, my selfish purview, it's if you cater to those marquee athletes and give them a great race and, and, and then every bit as much cater to the guy who's several hours behind them and give them a great experience from start to finish from the minute they sign up, they start getting communicated with in a different way, supported. Um, we offer recon rides. We try and get people to be more and more comfortable with this adventure. So from, for me, my belief is that if you create a product that can attract the best and then bring others along because the best are there, but make sure that the guy who finishes in 12 hours has the time of his life and feels supported and loved, then you're doing the right thing. I think what happens is someone goes, oh, look at gravel is so popular. We should host a gravel race. And then they're not attentive to the fact that you have to have it well marked, that you have to have water much more frequently than you would think you need to have it. And you need to service that rider in ways that cost you money and energy. And I think they kind of wake up after the race going, oh, that was a lot harder than I thought it was to put on a race like this. I think those people will go away. I think the people that are in it for the love of it will continue to create wonderful experiences for people. I wonder what um, role that marquee athletes are going to play in this because in some of the conversations that I've ha- been having today, it's you know it's pretty evident that some riders are uh, getting like start money to appear at events, and that's like yeah, they of- ask us for that, but yeah. we don't give it. Yeah, well, I I wouldn't if I were you either. You're coming from a, a position of uh, of strength. Yeah, you could say you know I have four thousand people showing up 
no matter if you're here or not. So sorry. But sort of the second yeah. or third tier yeah. races that are looking to try and kind of jump to the front of the line. Um, you know, you could pay a, a marquee rider who has a thriving social media scene, who has won big races um, to do that. And uh, I, I think that's going to be an interesting dyna- dynamic, too, is the role that these quote unquote gravel p- uh, pros are going to play as the uh, racing scene gets saturated and then you know some events start to go away um i'm not comfortable paying one athlete because there are other athletes there that also deserve that money and i don't want to be you know like like my parents were with my twin brothers they could never give johnny something and not joey so i don't want to give johnny something and not joey but what i do want to do is have the largest prize purse in gravel next year so that they have something that's valuable to race for. But I'm not going to pay anyone to go for that. So prize money and media attention has um, been at the forefront of some of these gravel controversies this year in which, you know, there's the written rules of gravel that say you can do X. And then there are sort of these spirit rules of gravel, these unwritten rules of, of etiquette and decorum that say, yeah, maybe you can do X, but you should probably do Y. Um, how have you viewed this discussion specifically around, you know, some of the questions of like having male pacers for women, having, you know, people decide not to take feeds, that type of stuff. Like where, uh, as a race promoter, do you see, um, the Delta between written rules and unwritten rules? Yeah. So I've seen really ugly behavior that makes me, um, that bothers me because then it forces me to say, here are rules. So I've seen, I've seen riders with support vehicles out on the course. So yeah, it's a support vehicle. You're handing water up. Uh, that's illegal. Uh, I don't, it's just dangerous. Uh, Oh, well, now all of a sudden your rider's riding behind you in the van. That's really bad. Um, oh, now you're getting in the van and catching back up to the leaders and then s- silently all of a sudden you're there again. That's really bad. All of those things have happened at our race. So it forces us to be um, enforcers. So um, I struggle with all that. And then, you know, there's the, w- the women's thing has really been irksome for all of us. And what I mean by that is, we want to give the women their own showcase. We want to have them racing each other. And um, so, so we want to be able to support them with, here's your neutral crew and here's your film crew. And there's no men around, uh, but inevitably there are men. And the amazing thing is whenever you're filming the women, there's men sitting on their tails and it's amazing. So what amazes me in our races, there's no women sitting behind the men. It's the opposite every year. Sarah Sturm, when she won a couple years ago, every every item of footage we had of her was driving 10 men behind her with a smile on her face. Same thing for even Tiffany Cromwell in North Carolina. Every picture of her, there's 10 men behind her. Um, so what you get is some women are saying, yes, give us our own spot. Like, give us that. We want to race alone. Then you have other seasoned women racers that are saying, no, 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 we want to ride with the men because they're used to riding with the men uh, and then that gives them a huge advantage, so they want that. But then the other side of their mouth, they're saying, yeah, but we want to be treated equal. So which is it, you know? And and they're split in the middle. So it's very hard for us. And so what we try to defer to is giving them their own spotlight, their own race, their own prize purse, sometimes even more money for the women. 
uh, and let them duke it out with each other. And that to me is more exciting. Um, and that's why it's I'm a bit conflicted about it. It's irksome because there is no clear cut solution. Yeah. And I think that there's a real challenge that all of you face who promote these races for creating rules that um, that are there for the masses because the masses are ultimately that's your core customer. And that's who's like keeping the race afloat yeah. or the thousands of people who are coming to participate and have a good time. And like they're maybe not necessarily racing to win. But then having those rules also apply to the 10 or 15 or 20 men and women who are like really gunning for the win. Yeah. And like how do you create rules for these two different groups of racers that have very different motivations and there's prize money and there's media opportunity and there's also this experience that you want to have that will keep people coming back and um yeah i mean how do you thread that needle you don't well, i mean you do and then what happens is one group wants to vilify you for taking the line of giving the women their own spotlight uh and then if you choose to do it the other way, the other half will vilify you. So you really can't win currently in this scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And with women's racing, I mean, I, I understand the motivation behind some race promoters to say, hey, mass start, let's all start it together. That's what we're all about. And I totally understand the way that you have gone, which is, you know, own field. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're never going to have a race that's completely untouched no. by some dynamic. Even I was at your event in San Diego and you know it was Alex Howe's got a flat tire and was trying to chase back on to <sighs> the bench race and he he bragged he drug the woman back together after there was a group but that's just you know that's just gonna happen yep yeah um yeah Michael while I have you here you know we're recording this it's late September um and you recently were struck by a driver while yeah. out on your bicycle and we're all very happy that you thank you survived it sounds like it was a terrifying crash yeah um I'm really curious, though, what perspective has that given you any different perspective on cycling, on riding? How are you how you are right now after after this uh, crash? Um, I've been hit seven times, Fred. So because I started riding when I was 12 and each time I've survived, some have been worse than others. I would say this one, um, I might, I, it's only been 10 or 11 days, so I'm really skittish riding traffic you know the ptsd it's your it's your mind's way of protecting you so i'm hyper vigilant and it's awkward um when i was younger i was like 23 i, I was like a cyclist turned tri geek and um like i won the world amateur championships i turned pro i got hit by a car that was a really bad one that was 18 months of rehab and then i came back from that and eventually forgot the, the fear and got back into it. I've been hit numerous times, almost killed, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, coming down to Panga Canyon in L.A. Got, you know, medevac to UCLA Trauma Center. And um, that I had 18 months of neuropsych treatment after that. That was really bad. And um, I feel like I've just triggered all, all that stuff that I've managed to push back down inside of me. And what, 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 what happens is this person ran a red light and, and so they clipped me on the left side and then carried me down onto the on-ramp on the freeway for a long way. And time distorts. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is really happening. Uh, this is going to be bad. My wife's going to be so pissed. I hope I survive. And then eventually, like, I was riding his hood, and then he slammed on the brakes. I landed in front of the car and thought, oh, now he's going to run me over. 
I had all that presence of mind and, and yeah, it was a, probably a couple seconds. And now I'm just dealing with, uh, all of, all of the, the flooding of, um, oh my God, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And then my body's still black and blue. But, uh, I guess your, your question is, you know, how does that affect the future for me? And there may be an eighth time that I get hit cause I'm going to keep doing this. Um, but I'll, I'll continue to be more vigilant, but how do you plan for somebody running a red light? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a fear that I think that I know myself and I'm sure a lot of listeners and readers grapple with as well. And there's no easy answer to it, but I do think that one of the things that your event is helping promote, which is getting off the roads and yeah. getting on gravel and getting on trails and stuff yeah. like that is, is one way to do it. I, I think so. And I think lots of people like us have migrated to the safety of the dirt and the adventure and to go, go back to the, the gravel ethos or the unwritten or implied rules and no rules is that there's a freedom to it. Uh, we're unencumbered by being with cars or where we can go. Like we can go pretty crazy places on these bikes now and you can have adventure readily available to you in your backyard, even in San Diego. I can get on these trails that go between houses and sort of thread the needle. And all of a sudden I'm in the wilderness and I've barely touched the road and that's in the density of San Diego. So there's this fun aspect and adventure that I think keeps us alive and allows us to have that, that youthful thing that somewhere along the way, bike riding captured our imagination, the freedom of it, the fun, doing the jumps. And we can tap into that youthful essence today with our gravel bikes. Well, Michael Marks, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, it's Belgian Waffle Ride, at now a four-race series, soon to be more. We're going to keep our eyes out to see yeah. uh, what's next yeah. for you. Yeah, thank you, Fred. All right. Thanks, man. The Science of Speed, Shimano's design philosophy for its latest road groups, is compromised of five elements. A new DI2 platform, a refined interface, the addition of Hyperglide Plus, a category redefining brake system, and a collection of new wheels. The result is a clean wireless cockpit, faster shifting, enhanced brake control, and quicker, more stable wheels. Top that with an easy to use eTube project smartphone app and connecting with your bike and enjoying the ride has never been better. Hey, thanks for that, Fred. And I just want to give old Fast Freddy D a shout out for his first gravel bike race. He placed ninth top 10 in the uh, the wafer division uh, out there at Belgian Waffle Ride. His first gravel race has been writing about the things, covering the things inside and out for years. But uh, the guy's been too busy to to get on the bike and, and race one. So I was able to do, do so this weekend and, and got ninth. So nice work. I hope to see you on the bike for, for many more of those. If you enjoy... Fred's writing. Fear not. He's gone from Vela News, but you can still find him on outsideonline.com. And we steal his stories from time to time and slap him up on velanews.com too. So speaking of riding bikes in gravel races, the Trek Checkpoint uh, just launched today. That was a bike I got to race at Steamboat Gravel a few weeks back and certainly enjoyed that. I was a fan of the old Checkpoint. Uh, it's a comfortable bike. I feel uh, I raced that at Unbound when it was still called Dirty Kanza a few years back. They've made a few modifications to this new bike. One, the, the ISO Speed decoupler 
uh, has been tweaked a bit. It's size specific. Basically what it does is it gives you a flexing seat post that's damped with an elastomer uh, inside the frame. So it used to be just the carbon flexing all the way down into the seat tube. Now it's the seat mast in an L-shaped form that goes into the top tube uh, in which an elastomer is hidden. So you've got, got a bit of flex there uh, without much fuss and it doesn't spring back too harshly because of the elastomer. Some people don't like having too much seat post flex and then it feels like your, your tire's going soft is the way Meredith Miller over at Shimano has put it. So some people like a, a firmer ride. I personally feel that gravel is a pretty rattly affair. So having a bit of give is, is a nice thing. Um, some, some other highlights of the bike. I got a little bit longer as is the trend these days with gravel bikes going a little bit more mountain bikey in its handling, adding to the top tube, subtracting a little bit from the reach on the stem and handlebar. Uh, there's some neat integration in that you can undo a little latch on the down tube and uh, in there you can hide your fat, flat fixing stuff uh, or a jacket or whatever else you want to tuck in the down tube. There's enough room for three bottle cages on the larger frame sizes. And one cool thing is there's some neat bag integration. You know, all the kids, we like running bags these days on our bikes, whether that's a, a bar bag or a frame bag. One cool thing that some of the smaller boutique brands have done recently is add rivets in the frame so that instead of having to Velcro on the bag, uh, you can just bolt it tidily to the frame. And that's something that Trek has done now with this new checkpoint. And I think that's cool because one, it looks clean. Uh, and two, there's no Velcro to, to snag your, your shorts or scratch your legs or whatever. So it's a small detail, but I, I think it's a a cool thing and certainly the first one I've seen from one of the bigger brands with a, a carbon bike. Other details that are appreciated, uh, a threaded bottom bracket uh, and the ability to run it one by or two by. One by is, is all the rage now, but uh, if you like having two rings, Trek is not forcing you to go the one ring route. The bike I've been testing and reviewed today on Villainews.com has a uh, the new SRAM Explorer group, the ETAP Access Explorer. And it's got a 1044 cassette. And then you can have your choice of rings up front from 40 up to a 46. Ted King was running a 46 at Steamboat. That's a little, a little bit much for me, but I also find like the far other end, the 40 to be too slight on any uh, type of just the slightest of downhill as it gets spun out. But for me, that 44 ring paired to a 1044 is the, the Goldilocks setup was enough to, you know, stay with fast groups on the flats, uh, but still have that one by one Jeep gearing for grinding slowly uphill. So that was a yeah cool bike that I'm, I was a fan of already and I'm now just even more impressed with. And like a lot of Shrek's bikes, it comes in a range of price points, which is a good thing. And to hear Trek tell it, they have availability of the bikes, which is, Phenomenal in this day and age of the global bike shortage. Some of the bikes I've tested recently was uh, right before Belgium Worlds was in Belgium Worlds, the, <laughs> the World Championships in Belgium. I'm just calling them the Belgium Worlds. Uh, it was a couple BMC bikes on one on either end, either far end of the gravel spectrum. The Road Machine X is basically an endurance road bike with the, the fattest tires that BMC can squeeze in there, uh, which is you know, a 32 mil tire. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got the BMC URS unrestricted LT 
for long travel. Now, mountain bikers will giggle at this because long travel here refers to a whopping 20 millimeters. And if you count the five millimeters of sag, you've actually got, uh, you know, 1.5 centimeters of travel, which isn't ginormous. But uh, I just find that it takes the edge off of uh, you know, some high frequency chatter um, and some tinier bumps. You know, again, at at 20 mil fully extended, even the slightest, not the slightest, but you hit rocks. Most rocks are larger, <laughs> larger than two centimeters. So it's not like it's going to make the bumps go away, but it is a fundamentally different experience than riding a non-suspended bike. It certainly comes at the price of uh, weight. You know, it adds about 800 grams up front and you know, adds uh, a bite to your wallet too. But I salute BMC for going uh, just investigating different ways we can we can go down our gravel roads, and it's it's certainly the most subtle aesthetic gravel suspension I have seen thus far. You know, we've got some mountain bike style forks, whether you know, like the Rockshox has its new Rudy, um, which is just a, you know a miniature mountain bike fork. Uh, we've seen specialized. Future Shock on the Diverge, which is similar in some ways to this BMC RS LT, and that it is a spring system, you know, inside the steer column, but that's at the top of the head tube. And now uh, this BMC design, it was co-designed with High Ride, which has worked with Pinarello in the past. You know, it sits inside the frame, so it looks like you've just got a, a rather large lower headset external bearing on the bike. So it's a, a very clean looking bike uh, and an interesting proposition for sure and certainly one if you're into gravel it's one uh, worth worth checking out so i'd encourage you to go over to Novella news and, and news noodle around in the uh, the gear section of our website so with that i will leave you dear listener i uh, appreciate your ear this week and i encourage you by all means tune in for the not one but two excellent races at Peru Bay this weekend. Thanks as always for listening, and we will talk to you next time on the Velo News Podcast.